Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Good morning. About a month ago, we celebrated Holy Week, which is when we remember the events leading up to and including Christ's death and resurrection. And given that we have ended the second part of our Genesis series, which might be news to you, um, I decided to look back at some of Jesus' final moments with his disciples before he laid down his life for them and for the whole world. And during what we understand to be his final evening with the disciples, he did a number of things. He instituted the Lord's Supper. He washed the disciples' feet. He predicted Judas's betrayal. He gave a new commandment to his disciples that they love one another as he has loved them. And especially during those hours, he again demonstrates his reliance upon the Father and his own obedience to him. And as he prepares for his departure, he, he uh, promises another helper will come. He says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. And he shows his disciples that they have special access to the Father. He says, if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. Meaning, if you ask anything according to Christ's will and pleasure, he will do it. The same night, Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Which ends up being one of the themes of those last hours where he was repeatedly showing his disciples what love is. And he drives the point home of their need to keep his commandments. And that the one who keeps his commandments is the one who loves him and shows his love to him. Jesus promises both the love of the Father and of himself to the one who loves him. And he reveals that to such a one, he will disclose himself. In fact, of all that is written in the Gospels, we see some of the most intimate moments with Jesus and his disciples during this time. We see him peeling back more of his plan and giving us more revelation, so to speak. More and more the veil is being lifted as he nears the end of his earthly ministry. And so we find him disclosing himself even in those moments. The words that he spoke to his disciples that evening were full of great comfort and great assurance of his love. And he poured himself out to them in a way that he had never had before. I'm sure many of the things he said to them were very difficult for them to hear. But despite the difficulty of what they heard, he comforted them. He comforted them and he called them his friends. An intimate friendship is exactly what we see in these last chapters of John. And it's in this context that I want to read from today in chapter 15. So you can please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 15, or you can follow on the screen behind me. And I'm going to read the full chapter for the context, but we'll be dealing with um, the first half. So John chapter 15. I am the true vine, 
and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. For if you, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command, what I command you. No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. This I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they do, all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin, but, they, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. When the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the spirit of truth who, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me. And you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. This is the word of the Lord. 
Now, if you were following along in the Bible, you probably would have noticed some markers, some headings, some section markers. This can be helpful, and sometimes it's unhelpful. Um, I find myself sometimes when I see those, I'll think, oh, this is a new section, and so not see how things are connecting to one another. Um, But in this chapter, there is a real cohesiveness from the beginning all the way to the end. It's not just the vine and the branches and then something else about being persecuted and hated. They are related and they go together. And it's more meaningful if you see it that way. And I've, I've, I will point out four sections that I see. The first being fruit as it relates to communion with Christ. The second being love. Christ set the example of love and then tells his disciples to love one another. And the third is hatred by the world, which is the clear result of love and obedience to the Father, love for Christ, and love of the brethren. And as 2 Timothy 3.12 says, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And the last section is concerned with the helper or the comforter, the one who brings peace to all of Christ's followers. And so on a very surface level, we can see the relationship. And I'd like to sum it up even more. If we are in Christ, we will have fruit. If we have fruit, we will have love for Christ and love for one another. If we have love for Christ and love for one another, we will be hated by the world as Christ is. But Christ doesn't leave us without help. He promised and did send a helper, the Holy Spirit, to aid us and comfort us in this labor. And so it's all working together, and we're not going to be able to handle the whole chapter today, um, but we'll touch on some of it. And now, let's look at verse 1. Jesus says, he is the true vine. He is true. He's not fake. He's not counterfeit. He doesn't lie. And he is the one in whom real fruit is produced. And if you think about the vine and Jesus being the vine, what what do vines do? They spread and they spread, sometimes uncontrollably. And they grow and grow and become stronger and stronger. They continue to send off shoots, which are the branches. The vine takes deeper root. And this particular vine, which is rooted in Christ, will spread and spread until it finds its way to the ends of the earth as the gospel transforms the world. Now, Jesus is not the true vine in the sense that he is a real vine, right? That's pretty obvious, right? He is not a vine. And you have to be careful to not take the analogy too far, too literally. If you find that a certain analogy in Scripture competes with or contradicts other Scriptures, you're reading too far into it. And what will end up happening is you'll end up not serving wine or grape juice in communion because it's the real blood of Jesus Christ and you don't want it to be spilled. And that has been the practice in the Roman Catholic Church. Or, 
if Jesus is the door, should we really be knocking on it? Now, I know it's funny, but not really funny. But these are the kind of conversations I've had with people where we just go in circles. And, well, Jesus is in the blood, and so we, we don't want to have wine or grape juice in communion, as I have argued with a Roman Catholic. That's taking it too far. And not every parable or analogy, you can't apply all the same parameters. They're different. But what is very clear from this text is that the branches are those who are in Christ. But think about that. Jesus said that the vine dresser takes away the branches that don't bear fruit. And so thinking logically, you say, well, I thought Jesus said in another place, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So if the branch is in Christ, which is the vine, how could it be taken away? Well, again, here's where you're reading too far into it. For we know that anyone who is in Christ is rooted in him and will not be cut off. However, here we have to make a distinction. For though there are those who are baptized, who are members of Christ's church, who partake in communion, who confess their sins, who tell the gospel to others, and who are instrumental in encouraging the faith of others, there are many whom these same things are true of, and yet who are not of the elect. There are those who we have seen in this very church who were once an encouragement to us, who strengthened our faith, but who later stopped their fight against sin and God gave them over to their lusts. These were those who were baptized, who were members of the church, partakers in communion, partakers in the fellowship of Christ, but who went out from among us, who fell away as is mentioned in Hebrews 6. And so we think of the, the parable of the wheat and tares. There was a man who planted wheat and an enemy who came in and sowed tares among the wheat. And when both had grown, it had become obvious that there were tares among the wheat. And the slaves asked the owner if they should pull up the tares. And the owner said no because the wheat will be pulled up with it and be lost. He said to let them grow together until the time of the harvest. And we learn from this that in the church, there are tares among us, wheat and tares growing together. They're participating with us, receiving the same benefits and nourishment and we grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, he will say to the reapers, first, gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. And this is a real warning to us to make sure we are truly in Christ. And so we don't want to read into this text and say, what about those branches that are thrown out? I thought 
that one who is a Christian can't fall away. Yes, this is true if he is truly a Christian. And we need to be sure that we are not merely outward professors of Christ, but inward as well, that Christ is in us. For even the Apostle Paul says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? We must receive these warnings from Scripture. And so let me ask you, are you in the vine? Are you in the vine? Jesus said in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. And so we wonder, why does the Holy Spirit give such warnings in his word? Why does he give such assurances like, you are clean, but then follow up with such sober warnings? And the answer is so that we would remain faithful. Christ's warnings are meant to help ensure us, to ensure our faithfulness to him, to ensure our salvation. They are meant to give us a godly fear. They are to cause us to remain in him and to not put faith in anything other than Christ. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And we are not to be lazy and slothful in it. We're not to go around spouting off, once saved, always saved, and then go about sinning as usual. There is truth in that statement, once saved, always saved. But it is not an excuse to sin. How would that be working out our salvation with fear and trembling? That's simply making excuses for our sins. It's reckless. It's proud. It's arrogant. And God warns us against such pride. Listen to this. Speaking concerning the Jews and Gentiles, Romans 11 says, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you being a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember that it is not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Quite right. They were broken off for their unbelief. But you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Behold then the kindness and severity of God. To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. God calls us to continue 
in his kindness, and we must not be proud, or he will not spare us, and we will be cut off. And this is a real warning. It is not an empty threat. Jesus gave his disciples and us healthy doses of assurance and comfort along with healthy doses of warning in these passages. And we need them both. Now coming back to the text, the vine dresser is our heavenly father. The vine dresser is not a farmer who sows seeds each year, grows plants, harvests, and digs it all up again. The vine dresser has a much more intimate relationship with his crop. He works with these vines for decades. He knows them intimately. He knows how each vine responds to his work. He knows which ones have, be, have been trimmed and how they have responded, what the results have been. It's very intimate. And by Jesus telling his disciples that God is the vine dresser, he is portraying to them how much God cares for them and knows them intimately. And he cares for them all the more because he is God, for he knew his own and chose them before the foundation of the world so that they would be holy and blameless before him. And so it's a great comfort that God is the vine dresser because of his intimate and special care for his children. And also it is a great comfort because he is a vine dresser that can do no wrong. He is perfect. He is holy. Let me ask you, what, what would you rather? To be under the knife of a surgeon who never makes mistakes or one who frequently makes them? Would you rather be under the knife of a surgeon who never makes mistakes or one who frequently makes them? That really is the choice. God is perfect. His actions are always good and right. They are decisive. They are for the good of the whole. And we can trust him as the vine dresser for whatever pruning he does, it is so that fruit may abound abundantly. And not just the oversized, big kind of fruit. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you notice how fruit keeps getting bigger and bigger in the grocery store? Do you notice it doesn't taste any better when it does? It's just more of it? That's not the kind of fruit I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of fruit that God has cared for that's juicy, sweet, not necessarily big, but just the right size. The vine dresser knows his vine and he prunes its branches exactly as it is needed. And we can take joy in this. He knows us. He knows exactly what we need. But here's the difficult part. Every branch that is in the vine, which is in Christ, that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. Why is this so difficult? 
because none of us want to feel the pruning knife. None of us want to suffer loss or hardship. We say, just leave our rotting branches alone. Or maybe they aren't rotting, but maybe the fruit isn't as good or as plenteous as it could be. And so the master gardener cuts, and it can be painful, but it is good. Because why? Because of the fruit. There is so much more good fruit afterward. And this is the work of our sanctification, that we grow in our fruit, that we produce more and more of it. And immediately after this verse, Jesus gives tremendous encouragement. He says, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. And very interestingly, the word pure, or sorry, prune, and clean is the same Greek word. So when we see the interplay between the word prune and clean, it's as if Jesus is saying, you are clean, but need to be cleaned. Or you are clean, but need to be pruned. I know that's a little bit confusing, but let me read a passage from John 13 that I think will help. Peter said to Jesus, never shall you wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, then wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, he who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean. So Jesus tells Peter that he is clean, but that his feet still need to be washed. You see the connection? You are clean, but you need to be pruned. And essentially what Jesus is teaching them is they are justified. They are clean, but need to be sanctified to further bear fruit. But if someone has no fruit, how can they claim to be justified? They can't be. Matthew seven sixteen says, You shall know them by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? No. I was hoping a kid would say no, because it happened in the first service. That's how you know if they are truly in the vine, if they have the fruits of the vine, which are the fruits of the Holy Spirit, which are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I said to Jody earlier, I can do that. I can say that because of him, because he wrote the song, The Fruit of the Spirit. It was you who wrote that, right? (laughs) That's good. (laughs) If you don't know it, go to Clear Note Songbook and listen to it. If there is no fruit, there is no faith. And that's what Jesus is saying in this passage, as does James when he says, faith without works is useless. Faith without fruit is no faith at all. And so branches that are in the vine that don't bear fruit are thrown out because they weren't truly in the vine. 
For if they were, they would have bore fruit. But those who are in Christ, Christ Jesus are justified. They are clean. They are the ones who are in the vine. Because they are in Christ or because they are justified, they will bear fruit. And bearing fruit is the act of being purified and made holy like Christ. Again, this is called sanctification. Those who are clean or justified are continually being cleansed or pruned or sanctified so that they will bear more fruit. This is the process of growing more and more holy until God has completed his work in his saints. But this cannot happen without the work of Christ. You cannot bear fruit unless you are in Christ. Jesus said, abide in him, and he will in us. For he says in verse 4, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you. You can't do it. Unless you abide in me, he says. There is no other way to do it. And if you think you've come up with a way outside of Christ to bear fruit, it's counterfeit. It's false. And Christ has no part in it. And Jesus furthers the point saying, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Without Christ, we are completely empty and useless. Without him, we are utterly unacceptable to God. And whatever skills or gifts you might have, they are nothing and will in no way make us acceptable to God without the foundation of Christ in our lives. And if we don't firmly root ourselves in him, Jesus says we will be thrown away as a branch, dried up, gathered, cast into the fire, and burned. And Matthew 3.12 says, His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his, thr- his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. A fire that is never quenched, where their worm does not die, as Mark 9 says. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And Jesus puts fear into the hearts of his disciples so that they would honor him and obey him, so that they would continue in him and abide in him. But in all these difficult words, he gives great assurance to his disciples. He promises to answer prayer. He says in verse 7, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now this is not the prosperity gospel, right? It's not prosperity theology which guarantees worldly and financial success if you abide in him as some famous preachers promise today. Jesus promises that if you abide in him and his words in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It is prosperity theology, 
but of the proper kind. If you abide in him, you will prosper as a fruitful branch in the vineyard and security of the master, our father in heaven. As opposed to the so-called security of the master of this world, the devil. Jesus doesn't promise earthly riches if you follow him. He promises a magnificent treasure in heaven, his inheritance. What joy, right? Amen? What hope this should bring us. What a future we have. Now think about it. If you had to choose between living with God in eternal bliss with all of the blessings of the king's inheritance or having some earthly pleasure now but then experiencing eternal death with unquenchable fire, which would you choose? Would you make Christ your master or would you make the master of this world, the devil, your master? Which would you choose? It's not a hypothetical question. It is the question. It is the only question. Whom will you serve? There is only one right choice, and that is Christ. Will you serve yourself, your own desires, your own lusts, your own body, your own gain? Then the devil is your father, if that's what you will choose. But if... If you abide in Christ, he will abide in you. And he will have great treasures in store for you. And not only that, but he will do what you ask if you ask it in his name, the name Jesus Christ. But what does it mean to abide in him? How can we do that? Well, the answer is in verse 10 and is a very simple answer. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Jesus has great tenderness for his sheep. He says, abide in my love. He says, listen to my voice and obey me, and you will be secure. He says, rest securely in me. Obey and abide in my love. And by this, we know that we have come to know him. First John 2 says, if we keep his commandments, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he, that is, Jesus, walked. This is how we walk in him. This is how we abide in him. By taking root in him and in his word through prayer. By walking in the same manner as he walked. 
and think how he prayed to his father. We are to walk in the way he walked. We are to take root in him by fully trusting in the vine dresser as he did, our father in heaven, the one with the knife, the one who will either prune us in our bearing fruit or throw us away to be burned. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as John the Baptist said. And if you keep his commandments, you will abide in his love, just as Jesus kept his Father's commandments and abides in his love. Jesus was an example of this obedience over and over, the perfect example. And then he laid down his life for his friends. He's the ultimate example of love. So in order to abide in his love, we must obey him. Will you do this? Will you keep his commandments and abide in his love? Do it and bear fruit. And you'll find that the more you grow and are sanctified, the more you will bear fruit. And the more you bear fruit, the more you will see your need for Christ. And the more you see your need for Christ, the more you will be driven to pray. And the more you are driven to pray, the more you will hear him answer you. He promises this to us. He promises us success in our prayers. He promises that if we abide in him and his words abide in us, that if we ask whatever we wish, it will be done for us. So abide in him and you will find success in your prayers. We have no reason to doubt him. And finally, I want to touch on one last thing from this passage. After this wonderful analogy of the vine and the vine dresser, the branches being clean, getting pruned, or being gathered up and taken away, and abiding in Christ, Jesus reveals the reason for saying all these things. He says in verse 11, These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. This is the whole point. Everything he said, these things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you. Do you have Christ's joy in you? I suspect many would say yes. But then let me ask you another question. Do you have his joy even when the father is using the pruning knife? That's the joy we want to have. That's what Christ means by full joy. That your joy may be made full. And in all of Jesus' exhortations, he doesn't say that it would be easy, right? 
He doesn't say it would be without sorrow. There will be sorrow. It will be difficult. But he certainly makes it obvious that we will find rest and peace for our souls in Christ. And we will have present and eternal security in the hands of the Master. Not a very temporal, financial, worldly security, but a very real present security and eternal security in Christ. And as he said, this is the, this is the purpose. It's joy. Joy is the reason he said all these things. And so we are to have joy in every circumstance. Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say it again, rejoice. Because why? Because God. Because he is our father. Because he did not spare his own son but delivered him over for us all and will freely give us all things, including his son. We should rejoice because God is our vine dresser and he knows exactly what we need. And sometimes what we need will be very painful and the pruning will come in very different ways. And we see this toward the end of chapter 15, starting at verse 18. If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. That's pruning. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know the one who sent me. This is pruning. Do you see that? This is the means that God uses to draw us to himself, to cause us to rely on him more and more through the hatred of the world. We don't know what they will do, except we know they will do everything they can to keep captive those who are imprisoned in Satan's chains. At the least, they will hate Christ and his father and all who are his children, and they will persecute the church of God just as Saul did before his conversion, and just as we did before the Holy Spirit moved us to salvation in Christ. But we need not despair if we love Jesus. There is hope, and we are secure. Jesus not only said here, if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you, but he also said, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. That's an encouragement. What do we know to be true? That all through history, people have kept God's word. 
and to this day and will continue so long as we are faithful. But it certainly won't be without consequence. Remember what I said earlier, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It is true. You know, one thing never ceases to amaze me is the vast difference between the godly and the ungodly. It is the godly who are accused of hatred, of bigotry, of misogyny, of selfishness, of unthoughtfulness, of arrogance, for being judgmental. And when we gather to pray and sing hymns or try to prevent another child from being killed or prevent another mother from destroying herself at Planned Parenthood, what do the wicked do? Or when we call a sinner to repent of their pride, their greed, their sexual immorality, what do the wicked do? Or when we publish an article on the Bailey blog or on Warhorn Media's website about basic manhood and womanhood, calling men to be men and women to be women, what do the ungodly do? They scoff. They hail curses, profanities. They show their true colors. They say the most despicable, unloving, and unkind things because their God is cursed. And he is profane, despicable, unloving, and unkind. And so are his offspring. Their actions show their hearts and who their father is. And what was Jesus' crime? He was perfect. He was righteous. And they hated him. They hated him for his righteousness. And they hated him without a cause. And he perfectly obeyed his father. Now think what will happen if we obey our father. The same will be true. But this is our joy. It may not seem joyful in the moment, but it will produce fruit. All these trials, all these things that God does in our lives are to produce more fruit. Do you have trials? If you don't see if Christ is in you, make sure he is in you. Obey him, repent, turn to him. Psalm 11.5 says, The Lord tests 
the righteous and the wicked. And the one who loves violence, his soul hates. When the Lord tests the righteous, he carefully prunes each branch so that it becomes more fruitful. And blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Are you in Christ? If you are, continue on. Persevere. Trust his hand, even when it brings affliction, because it is for your good. His discipline is a sure sign of his love for you, and you will become more and more fruitful. Have joy in this. Hebrews 12:11 says, "All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." Have joy. And if you are not in Christ, believe and turn to him today and obey him. Abide in him and he will abide in you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are sobered by your word. But Lord, we want nothing other than to be in Christ. Lord, stir our hearts by your Holy Spirit so that we would obey you, that we would be in you. And Lord, there are those among us who are not in Christ, and we pray, may it not be so. Lord, give us obedience and faith. And especially, Lord, give us joy at trials whenever they come that we would trust you, you who are perfect, you who can do no wrong. May we trust in you and may we please you and may we bear fruit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.